Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with an amazing doctor, author, researcher, and luminary in the field of stress management, Dr. Mitu Steroni. She's a medical doctor and neuroscientist trained at University of Cambridge and Harvard. Her book, Stress Proof, is an incredible guide that highlights the effect of chronic stress on the brain with evidence-based guidelines on how to manage it. We believe that the cornerstone of better health is stress management. And in this conversation, Me Too gives us profound insight into the art of stress management. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as we did. Mitu, so nice of you to connect with us and be with us to have this conversation. We've looked forward to it for a long time and we really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I love both of your work. I've read your book and I think what you're doing is incredible and has so much you know, importance and relevance in today's world. So it's a huge honor for me to be here. Thank you for having me. Same here. I mean, to be honest, we've read uh, stress is an important concept for us. I mean, yes. even uh, where we are working in Loma Linda, but also in beach cities where, where we're leading a uh, basically a, a community wide and a brain health initiative. The central issue is stress. So we've been reading a lot of books and of all the books, the one that we've liked the most was yours. Your book was absolutely incredible yeah. because it it's such a beautiful balance of science and you. You've, you've kept the integrity of science, but you make it so much fun and so easy to understand and read it. And I absolutely love the flow and all of the content. And and, and you've kept the, the necessary complexity that has to be there. You you know, sometimes when we wrote the book, you know, we were told over and over, you have to dumb it down, dumb it down. Uh, there is only so much you can dumb it down because it really needs that beautiful artistic science, uh, that the, 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 the wonderful nature of science that you've actually weaved through the book. So we, we appreciate it for that. And also more importantly, how do you apply it in your life? I mean, yes. it's not just as an esoteric book. Absolutely. So your book, Stress Proof, um, it's a beautiful compilation of, you know, your own story, as well as all of the research that you have come across. And you also give everyone a solution to it as well. Um, tell us, tell us what made you write this book? How did you, how did you actually start thinking about it and come up with a plan? So first of all, thank you so much for the kind words um, about my book. Um, so in terms of how I came up with it, you know, as clinicians, um, as neurologists, um, you'll be aware of this kind of underlying unsaid narrative of a potential contributor to, to illness in general, but also specifically to neurological illness, which has always kind of been there, but has never really been talked about so much. And, you know, when I went through my, my own medical training, um, I, th there were so many conditions where patients would say, this has been exacerbated. Doctor, I know what did this. I know what caused this relapse. It was this. Now, of course, you can't say for sure that stress causes a relapse, but patients would often say this. So the word stress has always kind of lingered behind me throughout my professional career. 
And of course, as a junior doctor, as again, both of you will identify with, um, I went through stress myself. So, and I, and I studied my own, um, my own reaction to stress, my own reactivity to stress. And then finally, for my um, most recent um, research, well, when I did my PhD, which actually wasn't so recent anymore, but um, when I did my PhD, I was studying pupillometry. So I was looking at people's pupils and measuring their pupil responses. And I was in this lab with an amazing machine and I was in there alone most of the time as a bit of a lab rat. But um, in doing so, I measured my own pupil responses. And I'd recently, you know, been going through a very intense period of my training and I was quite stressed myself. And then when I started my PhD, I started doing, looking after myself more in a very kind of unaware way in the sense that I started doing um, hot yoga quite a lot. I was no longer working nights uh, as another um, dimension to that. And when I studied my own pupils, I found my baseline pupil um, diameter, as well as my the, the speed at which the uh, pupil contracts, all those parameters changing, reflecting a lower sympathetic balance and a higher parasympathetic drive. And I found that all of this kind of linked, and I was absolutely fascinated at the fact that the pupils are a window to your stress state by being a window to the autonomic nervous system. So all of these threads kind of came together and they were all playing at the back of my mind. And I came to Hong Kong and with my husband and I was around many people who were under a lot of stress and they were asking me, you know, do you have any tips? And I realized I hadn't actually got any tips because the, I didn't really know what the research was out there. So I went through as many papers as I could find over a couple of years and it turned into a manual. I wrote a manual essentially for people and then someone said, why don't you try and get this manual into a book? And that's how the book became Stress Proof. That's amazing. I mean, um, your own research. And uh, so uh, as for those who, who are listening to pupil as a window to the, to the, to the, to the brain, uh, we did the same kind of research at Cedar sinai We looked at the retina and looking at the retina as a window to, uh, to the brain and as an early detection of Alzheimer's, we looked at actually uh, amyloid deposition uh, and using curcumin because curcumin has a significant significant affinity for amyloid and you can actually detect it but also others are now looking at microvasculature of the retina as an early predictor of vascular disease but also alzheimer's so you're you're it's amazing that we both uh, looked at the eye but, right. and then recently yeah we were studying for you know how it is if after a few years you have to take your boards again and uh, you have to uh, go over the whole and we were looking at the sympathetic and parasympathetic system and how the eye is responsive to everything so so tell us about what you found as far as the pupil and and its uh, interaction with with the stress responses so the pupil is actually a very interesting um uh, structure in a very interesting location because if you really look at the dynamics of its nerve supply of its input and output it essentially stretches over the entire landscape of the topics we talk about when it comes to stress. So first of all, um, there is quite a lot of interest. Um, it, it started, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but it's, it's really rising today on how the pupil tells us 
how the one particular structure of the brain called the locus ceruleus, um, mm-hmm. which we can abbreviate to LC, um, its activity state. Now, the locus ceruleus, the LC, is the center of norepinephrine um, in the brain. So, and most of your listeners will be will be aware of norepinephrine um, and epinephrine as the hormone, the the neurotransmitters which are involved in alertness, arousal, and also in the stress response. Now, the, the pupil's actions in terms of how quickly it dilates, how what its baseline state, so how big your pupils are when you're feeling relaxed, all of those reflect the state of the brain's or of our arousal. When we say arousal, we mean physiological arousal, so really alertness, how alert we are. And that alertness level, the baseline alertness level, is a very delicate interplay between the sympathetic and parasympathetic arms of your autonomic nervous system, both of which are always turned on, but their respective gain is modulated depending on what you're doing. And your baseline balance of your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, its, its balance is essentially reflected by the dynamics of the pupil Uh, pupil's baseline state and when the pupil reacts the very fine movements so the rate at which it dilates the rate at which it constricts again after stress or even after light has been shown upon it all of these reflect the conversation going on between these two arms of your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems and most importantly they reflect your level of alertness and arousal so in a way looking at your pupil tells us the state of arousal of kind of baseline alertness state of your brain and this is very relevant in the stress landscape for a couple of reasons so the first reason is that your alertness level which is set by the conversation within your autonomic nervous system, your alertness level, in essence, decides the threshold at which you react in stressful situations. And how alert you are in your baseline really reflects how how easy you find it to switch off or to calm down again after stressful situations. So in, in doing so, watching your pupils um, interactions, watching your pupillary dynamics gives you a very good indication of what's actually going on within this conversation that your brain has with the stress response and with its own kind of alertness and calming dynamics. As a parallel, of course, is the pupil, when you shine light onto the pupil, that information is conveyed to the brain on a separate pathway. Of course, there are lots of inter-pathway conversations, but on a separate pathway, which actually leads to your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which leads to your body's Uh clock. And hence, Mm -hmm. your pupillary pathway is a big contributor to your brain's assessment and measurement of how long the day is, how long the night is, so of circadian rhythm. And which, of course, we know, again, plays into the stress landscape. So the pupil is this beautiful intersection of all of these worlds. 
Oh my goodness, how yeah. much fun is that? I, you know, <laughs> when, we, when we got married, <clears throat> I was already a neurologist and I knew about this and I was reading your pupils when, and, and your, her pupils were <laughs> wide open. Either she was just scared, was trying to run away or excited. So I don't no, know, whichever I was, one. But I was nonetheless, excited. Exactly. So before we go there, let's actually step one, uh, take a step back as far as stress is concerned. So uh, the whole com- conversation about stress is, is a little tricky because how you define stress is where everything starts. Because uh, the way we define stress, I think it kind of matches what you def- the way you define stress. It's stress is not just stress. It's much more complicated than that. Yes. Correct. And it also dep- depends on your current state of mood and it actually changes. Your perception of stress changes as time goes on. Would love to hear what your thoughts are. Thank you. So, yes, I agree with you. Um, the thing is, the stress is a very widely used word. And because it's used so widely, it loses its its value because people assume all sorts of, associate all sorts of meaning with stress. Now, when we talk about stress in general, um, a an acute stress reaction. So the kind of stress that you'd encounter, you know, when you're sitting in traffic or you you leave something cooking on your stove and you forget about it, you come back and you, your heart starts beating faster, all of those things, that's a natural part of being a human being. And that response is we have evolved, we think, to have it because it saves us from danger. Because what it does is it recalibrates the set points, the baseline at which your body operates so that you survive in that particular moment. So as an example, we all know that when you become suddenly become stressed from something very small, blood pressure rises. Now, evolutionarily, this rise in blood pressure which meant that the body was now maintaining a higher baseline of blood pressure. This rise in blood pressure allowed us as human beings to carry on surviving when we were losing blood, when we were deprived of glucose, so the glucose supply, the, the blood sugar level in our blood was, was lower, but the pressure of the blood kept blood supply going for longer. It kept blood flowing to our brains when we were losing blood after being attacked, say we were attacked by a predator or by something we were chasing ourselves. So having a rise in blood pressure actually helped save our lives and resulted in our being here today and having this conversation. So this is really what a stress response is. It acts at many levels, not just blood pressure. It changes, it recalibrates the way your brain responds. So it dims certain things in your environment and it sharpens other things in your environment. So for instance, when you become acutely stressed, you lose the ability to carry out goal-directed behavior. So you stop focusing on your long-term goals, you stop just deep concentration and intense thinking and Instead, you become acutely alert to all the little things going on around you, all the small movements, the soft sounds. If you're a combat soldier in a war zone, this saves your life. So again, this is a recalibration process. Now, all of these little temporary recalibrations which save our lives are excellent, but they're only useful and good for us in short bouts. If this 
this situation, this state, this, this, this stressed state continues for a prolonged period of time, those little adjustments start causing us harm. So we know, for instance, that we can't operate in the long term with a raised blood pressure. We know the consequence of having chronically raised blood pressure is. We also can't operate in the long term by being hyper alert to environmental stimuli, to, to things around our environment, because if we were, we couldn't, we would respond to every little thing. Our brain would be a constant buzz of hyper arousal and hyperactivity, which is disadvantages, which it causes harm rather than good. And we also know that, for instance, things like cortisol, which in one short, sharp bout is actually has an anti-inflammatory effect and has many beneficial effects. When cortisol becomes prolonged, if you never stop being stressed, then its effects change. So you can't just extrapolate its short-term effects by its long-term effects. And it's when this state of stress starts becoming prolonged and we don't recover from it, that is when that stress becomes harmful. We call that chronic stress or toxic stress, as you say also in your book. And that is the stress that we tend to talk about when we talk about stress being harmful. Absolutely. We think it's essential to any healthcare program if you don't address the stress and and it's in a and it should be addressed in a personal way right because everybody's set points are to some extent different we actually think that some of that set points are genetic i mean you see this in children that are you know the newborns and how they respond to uh, they respond to different stressors and there are there's actually research that that beginning state of response to stress we're we're defining stress in different ways right. here but but that that unexpected amount of stress that beginning state is a big determinant of long-term response to lifelong stresses and risk-taking behavior for good and bad because some of leadership is good risk-taking behavior so to us understanding stress is absolutely central and pivotal and more importantly understanding one's own stress yeah, absolutely and you know when it comes to understanding speaking of understanding um, when you look at uh, the science literature, um, there's a lot of variability, not only in the definition of stress, but just understanding it better. Um, And I I suppose it's because of um, uh, lack of acceptance of the definition and looking at it from different uh, perspectives. What are your thoughts about that? Why is it so difficult um, to study stress in a scientific way? This is a really, really important point. I think that, you know, what you say is exactly right. We are all calibrated in a slightly different way. And one of the one of the threads that's emerging is that rather than absolute stress, and really there is no such thing as absolute stress, um, as you as you've just pointed out, what is stressful for one person is going to make another person thrive. And there's we can't say there is an absolute unifying threshold of stress. What we can say is that perceived stress seems to be the critical factor here. And one of the reasons why studies in the past have sometimes not shown clear relationships between stress and its sequelae, so stress and its consequences, is because these studies have used absolute markers of things like cortisol levels or absolute markers in other respects. Now, 
when it comes to perceived stress, your perception of stress may not always necessarily correlate with your cortisol level. It can do, but it may not always do so. For instance, there are also studies that suggest that we know that in the stress response, there are really two components. This is very loosely speaking, there are two components. There's a neuronal component, your nerves operates through electricity, hence that response is faster. The autonomic nervous system response is the first response. And then you have the hormonal response, which operates by diffusion, and hence it's ever so slightly slower. But your hormonal response operating through your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, abbreviated to HPA axis, follows your autonomic nervous system response, but both of them are part of the stress response. Now, in some people with chronic stress, they have an imbalance or they have a an overdrive or overactivation of their sympathetic arm of their autonomic nervous system. And that's the only thing that that's measurable in their situation. You may not find that their cortisol levels are either always ab- abnormally high or even abnormally low. Their autonomic nervous system baseline is what correlates with their level of perceived stress. In other people, you may find that their cortisol levels are actually very low. They're producing less cortisol than an average person, and yet we associate the hormone cortisol with, a, we call it a marker of stress. So you see, the, st- the perception of stress is one thing, but its manifestation can be different things for different people, which is why if you were to use, for instance, cortisol as an absolute marker of chronic stress, some people would fall within that threshold and other people wouldn't, and yet all of these people would be stressed. So I think that has been a, a kind of a revelation in stress research, which people are acknowledging now more and more. That's fascinating. It, it, it appears to be uh, across the board when it comes to neurotransmitters and uh, um, uh, neurochemical reactions. Because when we were doing research at NIH, uh, I'm not going to say how many years ago, but uh, it, it, what we found was initially, when as far as dopamine is concerned, in Parkinson's, I did the two years of fellowship at, in Parkinson's, and so uh, Parkinson's is a disease where dopamine is lacking, uh, as as well as other neurotransmitters. But so why don't why we just replace it well it's not that simple it's not just amount of dopamine it's the tonic release how much and what time and you know all of these things because if you give a little bit too much and a right wrong time you get these incredibly unusual movements the same is true across the board of all neurotransmitters that's right sorry a little bit of tangent that's why we worry about this perception that the medicines we have are like almost targeted and magical. We really have very blunt medicines when it comes to depression and anxiety. They're not surgically approaching the pathways of anxiety and depression. They're just affecting whole transmitters altogether. With stress, it's the same. It's a background that that you have to take into consideration and up and down. So I, I really appreciated that when I read that in your book, the complexity of it should be addressed. Not just saying cortisol goes up and 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 oxytocin or you know something of that nature. So it's much more complex. But the but the core is we have to start with defining stress in a way where each person understands that their levels can change. So we uh, that's a that's a lovely approach that you've taken in your book 
you know, sometimes it's difficult to deal with complexity, but you've dealt with it so beautifully. Yeah. Um, so why do you think um, is it so popular nowadays to talk about stress and and to be honest and uh, we haven't heard a good conversation yet until we've we've spoken to you thank you um i think you know this is this is a very this is a point that i found interesting too because i started uh, thinking about stress around the same time that the world started <laughs> thinking more and more about stress and i think there really there there are at least two or three reasons why i think this is the case i think first reason is that in terms of, of, of the world at large, as the world is changing, we have to, you know, human behavior and human consequences reflect what's happening in the world in general, across humanity, across cultures, countries, uh, you know, across the world globally. And we, we all appreciate that right now there is this huge transition from the way in which we used to live and work in the past and the way in which we live and work today. We talk about being in the knowledge age. So the knowledge age is really the age where more and more of our work and our interactions are moving from kind of arm and leg, limb-based, movement-based, actual physical-based interactions to mental interactions. So our minds are doing much more of what we use, what our arms and legs used to do. I mean, if you imagine an operator of a tractor on a farm, the, the tractor itself during farming will have gone through a huge evolution. So 50 years ago, someone would have to do many things manually on the tractor, whereas now they're all computerized. So the driver of the tractor on a farm just sits there and uses their mind to operate the machine. Now, this is one one semblance, and I'm, I'm also very aware of this in medicine, especially in things like robotic surgery, as another example. But really broadly, what I'm trying to say is that the mind and the well-being of the mind is now becoming the central worker globally. And as such, organizations of all calibers, you know, of all, all colors, all varieties are noticing that since the mind and not the body is now the main worker today, is the main workforce today, it's the main infrastructure of today's work workforce. The mind's suffering and whatever limits that mind's work is something that's worth paying attention to and worth caring about. And of course, stress now emerges as the principal productivity limiter in that arena. And that's causing many organizations to now invest in ways to improve mental productivity and hence focus on stress. So that's kind of the global picture. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in terms of, you know, you have to, unfortunately, money, money talks. So right now, investing in stress has become something that limits financial productivity. And that's why the focus is falling. Now, moving on to the global picture, of course, from the healthcare point of view, we are noticing that there is a huge rise of all these conditions of obesity, of type 2 diabetes, of metabolic syndrome, and possibly of dementia. I, I say possibly, we know there's a, that there is, we know about the incidence, but I'm, I'm very tentative still about its link, and I'll explain that in a moment. But 
we know that there is this rise of all these diseases in the world. And with things like obesity and type 2 diabetes, there are many interventions that people are suggesting. They're suggesting diet. Governments are investing in diet, dietary advice and all of these things. But it's possible that there is another element to it which we have not considered. And very gradually, this link between stress and obesity and type 2 diabetes is emerging. So could it be that this global burden of disease could actually be reduced to a certain degree by addressing stress? And the third angle, I think, is a more general angle, which is the fact that we are human beings, we are evolved creatures, and we have been evolving continuously. But we've been evolving to our environment. And at the moment, it seems that our environment and the world in which we are living is perhaps moving at a faster pace to the pace at which we are able to adapt to it. And that maladaptation process is causing people to perceive their own stress levels. And that could be an added third factor of why stress is such mm -hmm. a conversation maker. Absolutely, absolutely. Fascinating. I, I, I definitely think so too. Yes. Um, the 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 difference in cultural interpretation is also quite interesting to me. Absolutely. I, I've been in war zones, and and then I've been in LA and in New York, and it's so funny that uh, that in different areas you you actually see where you would expect perceived stress to be higher, it's actually perceived as lower. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, a complex interplay. So then I wanted to kind of take us first into anatomy, which I love, uh, neuroanatomy <laughs> especially, you know, frontal lobe, you, you go into detail in into, into the interaction of the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system and the, and the you know, hypothalamus and the whole, and I think that is so valuable to, uh, for people to understand that their prefrontal cortex which is what they have control over, which, which is what makes them in many ways, can affect not just their emotions and their stress, but their uh, response to uh, immunological system, their, you know, their uh, insulin response, growth hormone, thyroid, everything else as well. So I would love for you to kind of speak a little bit about anatomy before we get into, you know, what affects it and what can we do about it? Sure. So in terms of the, the stress response, so normally our brains operate in a very Goal diet. Well, when I say normally, I mean that in an unstressed state, the brain operates in a goal directed way, which means that, and very broadly speaking, which means that the brain, if you see it as a corporation or a, a, actually maybe a better one would be an orchestra. So you have yes. the conductor of the orchestra, which we can imagine as, as a person sitting in somewhere in the region of the front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, conducting the rest of the brain, the departments in the rest of the brain to play that perfect symphony. Okay. And when it is doing that, we know, for instance, that there is there are lots of functional pathways connecting the prefrontal cortex regions of the prefrontal cortex specifically um, i talk about it very generally because we know for instance that parts of the inferior of the parietal cortex too uh, have parallel roles in this 
But we know that the prefrontal cortex, which we call our executive sometimes in, in, in nomenclature, um, is really the, the, the kind of the general area where this conductor of the brain is sitting. And this area of the brain is involved in decision-making, in planning. It's involved in attention because some of the attentional circuits pass through there. And this goal-directed, in this goal-directed state, it kind of carries out a very calm, a very balanced, a very synchronized, um, it maintains a synchronized activity of the rest of the brain. And in this state, um, we can kind of see it in a practical manifestation. For instance, if you're in a state of deep focus or deep concentration, in that sort of a state, the parts of the prefrontal cortex maintain this state of deep focus and deep attention. And part of this maintenance involves making sure that any small elements of distractions, any emotional thoughts, any sounds or noises from your surroundings, they're all being muted down. And, you know, we know, for instance, now recent, um, recent evidence suggests that when we pay attention to something, it's not necessarily just shining a brighter spotlight on that. That is what happens, but we don't just shine a brighter spotlight. What happens is we dim down the spotlight on everything else. And that's why the relative brightness of that spotlight is enhanced. And that's essentially what the prefrontal cortex, very broadly speaking, with its friends in the parietal cortex area, is doing when we're in this state of goal-directed behavior. Now, when we're in a state of acute stress, our levels of arousal change. We become more alert. And at that point, the prefrontal cortex abandons its goal-directed symphony, its beautifully coordinated symphonic orchestra. And it instead, it, this goal-directed state fragments into a state where the brain responds there and then to elements of its environment. We call it a stimulus-driven state. And in this state, your arousal levels, your alertness level rises. So you're this magic place, locus ceruleus, which we can measure to some degree by looking at the pupils. This part of the brain raises arousal. It talks, it converses with parts of the emotional circuits, one of which is the amygdala, specifically one part of the, uh, some parts of the amygdala, basolateral amygdala, for instance. And this new state that emerges actually responds to the stimuli in the environment at a lower threshold. So you have an enhancement of emotional arousal, of emotional reactivity, of negative emotional bias, and you have a relative diminishing of attention and focus and concentration. And very broadly speaking, this is in this sort of situation, you can imagine the conductor of the brain's orchestra gives the stage, gives the floor to the wind instruments sitting in your emotional pathways and they take the stage because they are now, their role now is more important than the role of concentration and focus and, um, 
and goal-directed behavior because their prediction, their erring on the side of caution, their assumption, their prediction, the state of hyper-alertness now alerts you to dangerous cues in advance of those cues appearing. So this state kind of this state changing is really a, a shift away from this prefrontal cortex dominated state to this stimulus driven state within which your emotional pathways become a key driver. Correct. And, so and then, yeah. And, and what's important is that then this, this hyperactive limbic or amygdala driven uh, state actually then affects your autonomic system and your uh, hypothalamic uh, pathways. I love how in your book you have, um, you've actually made it real and you've given it life by giving examples and creating scenarios of you know what actually happens in the brain when someone is under stress and I recall that one scenario where um, you paint a picture of somebody going to work and then looking at um, his supervisor and the supervisor not smiling back like he used to every morning towards you and this whole cycle of or the perceived stress stress of, oh, maybe there is something wrong and then creating the story in your mind and that inciting a lot of stress in one's body, as opposed to the second scenario where you create a completely different picture of, you know, finding out that the supervisor... <laughs> has had something done to to his face and you know maybe botox. maybe some botox and maybe he wasn't able to smile oh and obviously everybody around in the office was looking at you in a particular way not because they were judging you but because they were laughing with you that was beautiful thank you yes i mean i think that's i've i've actually heard of that example before i wrote it so it really stuck on my mind and how real you know this can be i mean you know in one of the real, really beautiful emerging areas of of, um, of neuroscience is this fusion between trying to between the drive to create an artificial brain um, and brain research, and this at the interface of these two lines of research a new hypothesis, which isn't really a new hypothesis, but it's it's certainly a, a hypothesis that, that wasn't quite as prominent before. But this hypothesis is now really gaining some traction. And this, this hypothesis is that the brain is a predictive machine, um, that it's a Bayesian predictive machine. And that has some enormous consequences, especially with stress and specifically with regard to the situation you just described with the uh, super Supervisor with a with a Botox, um, of course, with a bad surgeon. There's some great Botox uh, Botox examples. Botox has got some great relevance in medicine as well. So not to demean Botox in any way. Um, no. Of course, but, of course. But um, one of the the things that we we're, we're discovering is that. I think that the research on the fact that the brain is a prediction machine really began, um, the reason I'm interested in it is really began with the visual cortex, with, with, with vision. Because of course, you know, we know that many aspects of vision is, is not real. For instance, um, color is, our perception of color is to a great extent filled in by the brain. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. there are more complexities to it, but, but we see big gaps in what we actually see see and what we really receive through our sense organs. 
So this whole idea that the brain is a prediction machine has now extended beyond the visual cortex to multiple areas of our functioning. And this is very interesting because it means that at every moment of the day, to an extent, we are making predictions and then we are gathering information to confirm that prediction in order to for the brain to feel safe, to eliminate uncertainty. And that brings in the uncertainty element of it. Um, one thread of this hypothesis is that the brain's main intention is to, mem- is to minimize uncertainty in the world. And there are some you know, great hypothetical uh, papers on this, on whether stress is really that. Stress is really the brain's kind of all-encompassing reaction to expecting uncertainty and minimizing this uncertainty. Um, and you know, we can draw many threads from this, but one thread, for instance, is that the brain is constantly constructing a picture of reality and it's extending information um, from the cues it's getting. The cues it's getting are very basic. So in that example you, 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 you described just now, the worker, the employee, is the only cue that the employee is receiving from the boss is that the boss is not smiling. Now, mm-hmm. if the employee is in a negative mood, has had lots of negative you know, experiences that evening or is, a, is in a generally negative state of mind, negative memories will predominate in that person's mind more than positive memories. And whenever we make, we draw conclusions from the cues we are getting in our environment, we tie those cues to our to the memories that are most salient to us and that are more important to us at that time. So in that situation, if that person is in a negative state of mind, the person will assume that the boss is not smiling because of, you know, lots of negative things happening at work, people getting fired, etc. But if that person were in a positive state of mind, there wouldn't simply be this filling in and linkage of these cues with the negative memories. The person would perhaps explore for further memories so that there isn't a, a kind of an automatic confirmation bias to confirm your negative fears. So we're actually operating in this in this way pretty much all day long. And this is why perception is such an important um, factor in stress because your perception of the world determines your interpretation of it. So how you are perceiving the cues in your environment determine what you are making of those cues. And these cues can come from the inside as well as from the outside. So the thoughts inside your mind, the way you ruminate about things, the memories you pay attention to, those too have a role in all of this. And, you know, to summarize, because the brain is such a predictive machine, because it draws conclusions, your perception of stress can be modified by the way you pay attention to the cues and the coming both from the outside and from the inside. 
It's it's absolutely gorgeous. Amazing. I mean, uh, that is the key. And I think it's the foundation of not just the stress, but uh, some of our political strives and, and, and divisions and everything else, because those perception and what, what confirmation biases that, that we were born with and we we're trying to keep that secure is keeping that divide is creating all this stress. <laughs> That's it. Don't worry. We won't go there. Uh, That's, a, That's separate a separate conversation. conversation. We should have that conversation We will sometime. have that. We'll, we'll have other conversations. It all comes back to neuroscience, doesn't it? Does, it? it does. It does. It all comes back to the pupil. Again, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> it does. The best thing. So it does. I mean, but uh, so having said that, uh, Dr. Gold, Goldstein, I think uh, the guy, the, um, the, he wrote the book um, Emotional, uh, Emotional Intelligence, Intelligence yes. and he speaks to the that relationship. In fact, that whole book is that relationship between the frontal lobe and the limbic system and how as powerful as we think the frontal prefrontal cortex is, that emotional brain and its safety seeking need driver, it can at any point take over control for any one of us. So we, and, and you said it beautifully, we just have to be aware of that and, and, and reset. So the next question would be, let's talk about pathology. What happens when this doesn't go well, what and and what mechanisms of uh, you know nervous system does it use, or is used to create the chaos in our bodies? So, when we have so so, this is a very um, this is a very multi-dimensional um, a very multi-dimensional question. I think one way I like to think about it, um, I like to think about stress is. To me, all the research is pointing to the pointing towards. I cannot say for sure, but it's pointing towards the, the idea that stress is somehow a trailer to the movie of a disease that will happen later on. And this disease can be something that affects that we associate with our bodies. So something like hypertension. But as you point out so beautifully in your own book hypertension also affects our things that affects our bodies also affect our brains. Um, but you know, it can be something like hypertension. This movie can be something like possibly type two diabetes. And now, you know, with the emergence of quite a lot of data in the field, we're finding some pointers that it's possible that this is a trailer to diseases of the brain, possibly even dementia. Um, and I think that looking at stress from that point of view is very interesting because really for two main, main angles. So one angle is the fact that many of the, of the interventions that help um, that, that help prevent the brain changes associated with chronic stress. So very briefly, to talk about this very briefly, animal studies have shown for a long time that if you put animals through mice, for instance, through chronic stress, we see a shrinkage in the hippocampal area of the brain. The hippocampus is the main area for memory and learning, and it also has other, um, other many other actions. It talks to the rest of the brain. So it's a very vital area. The hippocampus also is, an, is a region of very vibrant and active synaptic activity. And in animals, at least, we don't know quite for sure for in humans as yet, um, but definitely in animals, it's also a huge region for significant um, neurogenesis, the growth of, of baby um, brain cells, newborn brain cells. 
And this part of the brain shrinks in chronic stress in animals. We also know that the medial prefrontal cortex in mice, which corresponds to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in humans, this area also shows a reduction in synaptic activity in mice with chronic stress. Now, if you take these mice with chronic stress, what prevents them? What prevents their brains from doing this, even if they are exposed to chronic stress? Well, one thing, for instance, we know is exercise. Okay, and exercise, again, it's become a cliche. I think no one in the world can argue against regular exercise of some form. Um, That's true. Um, but it, specifically in the case of, of the mouse brain, we know that, the, that exercise in general increases the birth of brain cells, increases neurogenesis in the hippocampus. We know that in human studies, now we can't take a human being and put it into a cage and make it run on a, on a wheel for prolonged periods of time, but we know observationally that exercise seems to have a protective effect on the volume of the hippocampus. Now, of course, we, we only observe this through a scan, so we can't you know, be completely sure without actually looking at the hippocampus under a microscope, but there's certainly parallels there that, that we appreciate. So the birth of newborn brain cells in the hippocampus and in the medial prefrontal cortex uh, plasticity in that region, these are enhanced by exercise. And in a way, exercising, this has been shown in, in my mouse studies, that exercising protects the mouse brain from shrinking of the hippocampus and from uh, disrupted plasticity. One way it does this is by possibly by enhancing levels of brain factors or kind of brain um, growth potions, like one factor called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Um, and BDNF, we, we know, enhances synaptic plasticity. It allows you know, more of the brain cells that are born to survive, etc. So that's one way in which it does this. And we know that exercise increases levels of BDNF. It also does so in humans. And this may be one way in which exercise is protective. What do we find in dementia? We also find loss, neuronal loss in dementia. We also find a decline in synaptic activity in dementia. And we also find very a, a great degree of overlap between the regions of the brain that are affected in um, dementia and are affected in chronic stress, definitely in animal models, but very gradually we're getting early data that similar regions may also be affected in human models. Um, again, data on this is early, but it is emerging. So we find this overlap of regions that are affected in both conditions, and we find exercise protects this in a stressed animal brain. Now, BDNF is one factor that I mentioned, and another factor I think that's very interesting that kind of ties in quite a lot of the brain's landscape is a new pathway of kind of brain clearance, which has owned, has emerged definitely since I went to medical school when we did not think that there was a lymphatic um, system present in the brain. This mm -hmm. new pathway is the glymphatic pathway, the glial mm -hmm. lymphatic pathway. 
And this is, um, this was, I think this was discovered around, well, there's some kind of gray area about when it was actually discovered, but it was certainly uh, right. emerged as a, as a thing, as a glymphatic pathway, as an entity of, uh, about a decade or so ago. Um, okay. And we, we now know th- the fact that the brain has this very special pathway, this glymphatic pathway, which is a very specialized waste clearing. I'm going to put it in inverted commas because it's simplifying it a little bit, but a waste clearance system. The brain, that the brain has this waste clearance system has got actually some very important implications with regard to chronic stress and also with regard to neurodegenerative diseases of the brain that one might acquire in the future. So coming back to the fact that things that protect the brain from stress seem to also have an effect on parts of the brain that are affected by Alzheimer's disease, we come to the area of the glymphatic system. If you take a mouse or several mice and you make them carry out aerobic exercise, that exercise increases the activity of this lymphatic pathway in the brain. It increases the clearance of amyloid beta, which, as we all know, is a marker of Alzheimer's disease. And we also know that sleep, which is another dimension, sleep also protects the brain, both the human brain and animal brains, from the effects of chronic stress. And yet, with regard to sleep, we also know that during deep sleep, certain oscillations across the brain enhance this glymphatic clearance pathway. Another dimension to this is the idea of the, this, the fact that the locus ceruleus, which is the center of the brain's arousal and alertness system, is one of the first areas to possibly to be affected in Alzheimer's disease. I think there's a hypothesis by, by Brach et al, B-R-A-A-K. Um, yes. And the fact that the locus ceruleus may be subjected to maybe the first victim in this Alzheimer's process is interesting because, of course, if you, if you stop, if you damage the locus ceruleus, it prevents these enormous calcium-driven waves across the astrocytes, which are these star-shaped glial cells across the brain, from taking place. And the brain does not have muscle in our bodies muscle movement can help lymphatic flow, but the brain has no muscles to flex. So it pushes this glymphatic flow, that's in a manner of speaking, through brain waves, through oscillations. And these oscillations are enhanced by deep sleep. They're enhanced by exercise. And, or rather, this flow is enhanced by exercise. So you find all of these kind of connecting pathways that show that what damages the brain in chronic stress seems to be relieved by certain things, which also relieve what damages, what potentially plays a part in damaging the brain in serious neurological conditions in the future, such as in dementia. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely amazing. I mean, uh, the, the fact that uh, just 10 years ago, we were looking at these diseases in such simplistic way. Now we are seeing the complex interplay of the, uh, you know, the astrocytes, the glial cells, the, the glymphatic pathway. And, 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 and we see by, by seeing that we see our effect on them. 
I mean, we can, it's not, whenever we bring this up that uh, potentially Alzheimer's can be prevented, it seems like a, um, a judgment. It's not. It's an empowering thing. Uh, to know about the complexity of the brain is an empowering thing. So having said that, let's consolidate around some of these. Let's start uh, for selfish reasons. We have this neuro concept, nutrition, exercise, stress, which is at the center. That's right. Uh, sleep and mental activity. Let's start with, uh, uh, since you just spoke about um, exercise, we'll start with exercise. You actually say that there is there is such a thing as too much exercise. Yes, that's right. So um, again, you know, let, let, let's take a very quick step back. We talked about how our environment is changing and how we haven't kept up with it and how this, this is a very important um, aspect for the very simple reason. We're discovering today that really quite bafflingly simple things like exposure to outdoor nature or listening to nature sounds or having social bonds or moving. All of these seem to reduce Several studies have shown, some studies are more, um, more reliable than others, but they certainly show or reflect broadly the fact that all of these things have a buffering effect on our stress levels, on, on signs that we are stressed, on our perceived stress. If we flip it over, before I come to the, the question of exercise, if we flip that over, one way of looking at it is we've evolved with certain elements of behavior and environment, which have always been around us. They are certainly take, suddenly taken away from us as we live more urbanized, very rapidly changing worlds. And so it seems that actually, it's not that these are antidotes to, to, to stress, but it's their absence that's raising our baseline of, of perceived stress. So bringing them in reduces us back to our baseline of, norm, of norm, normality. Exercise is a very interesting aspect of that because we used to move far more than we did do today. We used to get up to answer a phone. We used to get up to write a letter or post a letter. Now we can do everything sitting on our chair. And we now know that if you take in animal studies, and, and this, has, this has really been reflected in human studies, there is something as, which can be seen as optimal exercise. And there is something which is seen as too much exercise. So evolutionarily, we've evolved to move to run after our food and really to just to do stuff, to do things around, around our world. And so moderate exercise has been shown to increase levels of BDNF, increase neurogenesis in animal studies. In human studies, there's a great study that I quote, which shows that actually exercising too intensely increases levels of inflammation in the body, whereas, and, and actually results in a higher level of cortisol for a longer period of time after the exercise than moderate or mild exercise. So actually how we exercise becomes very important. Now, of course, a broader aspect of this is that exercise for many people, intense exercise or doing a big challenge has a positive effect on their sense of agency and their sense of self-worth and self-confidence. So we have to factor that in as well. But on a general day-to-day -day setting, moderate exercise seems to be more beneficial or less inflammatory than intense exercise. 
Correct. That's Excellent. amazing, amazing finding. So um, uh, hopefully we'll have more data on that for people who, um, because there's a perception also that, um, you know, um, strenuous exercise seems to be more beneficial. And the more you do it, the more connections you build, the more synaptic plasticity you get. But um, hopefully we'll get more data on that. Um, I, I, love, I love the fact that uh, now with uh, the tools that we have, the diagnostic tools that we have and all the fabulous research that is going on, uh, we're understanding the complexity of, uh, of uh, disease, specifically Alzheimer's disease, the disease that Dean and I deal with, and also the applicability of every aspect of our lives on it. Um, like you said, um, uh, exercise. But you know, beyond just the things that we do, um, I want you to tell us about you know some of the um, the specific environments that you mentioned in your book. You you mentioned psychological environments and uh, physiological environments as also and also physical environments. Uh, tell us tell us what that means and how how people can actually understand um, the implications of that on stress and as a consequence on their brain health. That's right. So you know, if we come back to the idea of the brain being this um, being this prediction machine, right? Um, if the brain is a prediction machine, then it's the picture it's building is a picture it's building out of cues in the environment. Right, and um, these cues are—they can be physical cues, they can be uh, cues coming from within the body, and they can be cues coming from within the mind. Now, when we talk about stress and we we talk about reacting and we talk about our baseline state of arousal, much of this really is influenced by what we perceive to be alarming and what we perceive to be not alarming. And a lot of this is driven by uncertainty. And this kind of brings in what I, what I just mentioned about the fact that all these facets of our environment, they used to be assumed to, you know, things like exposure to nature or things like movement, all of these things, they were part of our background as we were evolving and they are suddenly not there. And it's possible that their absence is making, there is actually a theory on this. It is absolutely not a proven idea, but there's a hypothesis that the absence of this is really contributing to stress in urbanized communities in the developed world. Um, so because these are all cues we are getting from our environment, if we play with these cues, we might be able to change the way the brain is perceiving, perceiving um, uh, uncertainty and reacting mm-hmm. to that uncertainty. So for instance, we know that um, if we talk about circadian rhythms as, a, as an example, we know that the brain through the pupils measures um, length of day and length of night. And one absolute certainty that we have evolved to harbor is the fact that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning. Okay. If tomorrow we woke up and the sun didn't rise, that would be just the worst thing ever. Now, our brain, although broadly speaking, we recognize that the sun rises even if we're in a dark room, there are many signals that the brain interprets from light signals in the environment. So for instance, if the light doesn't dim out in the evening, if there is too much blue light in the evening or bright light in the evening, it prevents the brain from recalibrating itself to rest during the night. 
And this recalibration process involves a calming down of the autonomic nervous system. It involves a consolidation of any fearful memories we've accumulated during the day so that we get rid of them before the next morning. And all of these things are mediated by hormones and other pathways, which are influenced by light. So for instance, melatonin, which is the hormone we release the naturally release at the end of the evening. Melatonin, if we have a drop in melatonin, if melatonin levels are not normal, are not adequate, then this affects our REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And rapid eye movement sleep is when we have, at least animal studies suggest, we consolidate um, negative memories during the day. So if we have too much light exposure during the day, we no lo- we're no longer able to wake up the next morning feeling brave. If there is too much light exposure in the evening, as when I say during the day, I mean towards the evening, if there's too much light exposure late into the evening, our level of arousal, of sympathetic arousal remains high which means there is an autonomic imbalance while we sleep. And we know that, you know, in certain cases of hypertension, blood pressure stays high during the night. And this is one reason why this might be happening. So, you know, these are the the subtle, the simple cues of what's coming from our physical environment, daylight and darkness. It's influencing a whole range, a plethora of kind of self-regulatory and self cleaning and self-maintenance mechanisms that the brain is undergoing to survive the day and to wake up the next day resilient. So that's one example of a physical cue coming from the environment. An example of the cue coming from within the body is, of course, inflammation. Now, we know, you know as well from your amazing book, um, as you've stated in, in your amazing book, that food is a, is a source of, potentially a source of inflammatory agents. There are also That's other right. sources which can increase your levels of inflammation. Even emotional stress mm-hmm. increases your level of, of uh, inflammation, be it temporarily or it can become uh, prolonged if your emotional stress is prolonged. Inflammatory signals within the body influence inflammation within the brain. And this in turn affects how well you know, this affects all the things we've just spoken about. This affects your arousal levels. This affects your glymphatic clearance, the way the brain washes itself every evening. So again, all of these things are interconnected. And then thirdly, um, the psychological cues that you're paying attention to. So as soon as you leave a stressful situation, if you carry on thinking about it, the same pathways that are active during the stress reaction will continue to be active afterwards. And this prolongs your recovery. So in this way, being aware of that and, for instance, doing something so simple as distracting yourself after a stressful reaction can have enormous implications on your well-being and your perceived stress and your baseline. I love that. Uh, I, I have to be honest. When I read that, uh, that people who are in a stressful situation and right afterwards, if you relax, actually, that's a bad thing. That actually gives the brain time to ruminate and and look for those negative thoughts that actually create further stress. The best thing you can do is to distract yourself, go out and, you know, uh, uh, exercise or do something else. That was absolutely brilliant. It was. Uh, I, I, we, I wasn't aware of that and, I, and we'll definitely use that with our with our clinic and, and everybody else you want to expand on that that that's a unique little it uh, is it's, it's almost um it's a uh, counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive and you never hear about um 
I guess I guess you know in in pop culture you're always um, encouraged to you know uh, completely turn away from uh, from negativity or you know no negative vibes so you know canceling out whatever is bothering you I mean you get that but um, you're basically saying don't just relax and not do anything about it completely change the script and go towards something else that was very interesting yeah thank you um see the thing is what we're realizing with stress is that it it really all comes down to flexibility so can you become stressed and then immediately spring back and that's what resilience is it's like an elastic band springing back and this ability to spring back to baseline is emerging as being perhaps more important than we assumed becoming very aroused emotionally aroused and then suddenly becoming very calm that is another very resilient aspect of of behavior and when it comes to acute stress unfortunately the weakest limb that we have is the mind we can't tell the mind what to think we can only tell the mind what to do and you know in a way some of the traditions of yoga for instance operate on this principle that you first train your physical body so you tell your arm what to do you tell your body how to balance and once you have control of your physical body you have great sense of self-control that in a way helps you train your mind a little bit more and um, which is why meditation um, is often seen as the next step of yoga but deviating back to this immediately after a stressful reaction unless you have ultimate control over your mind if you tell yourself to calm down or just just stop thinking about it or calm down or focus back on your work it's pretty much impossible to do so the next best thing is to really give your mind something to do don't tell it what to think tell it what to do and so giving your mind something in which it's by which it's occupied reduces the emotional arousal caused by the stressor as soon as it reduces the emotional arousal and your mind climbs back to baseline it becomes easier for yourself to gain self control it becomes easier for your brain to regain self regulation and from that point onwards it's much easier to first of all process what just happened and of course recover further into the baseline you see we used to always assume that what works for physical stress is the same for emotional stress but it isn't if you go for a long run yes you need to rest by doing nothing but if your mind is completely buzzing with something very emotional if you keep your mind empty it buzzes even more so the only way to lower the tone down is by occupying the mind on a different topic so that its emotional arousal from that trigger is diminished and from that point onwards you can carry on with your day so you're saying it's okay to start dancing after you hear you know some of the political news on tv nowadays it's the best thing to do <laughs> <laughs> Let's start to dance. Yes. Okay. After. I mean, yes, you're, absolutely. Yeah. 
Your, your neighbors might call the the nine one one, but that's okay. That's a different thing. But, but you know, it's 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 interesting that you say that because I've been thinking about this quite a bit. It's the aging process, and and by aging, I mean it's not fifty, sixty, and above. I mean throughout life is a process of dysfunctional resetting of baselines. Whether it's the omega three, omega six level, what's the inflammation baseline? We know that as we get older. Uh, you know, in regular life, you have inflammation and then you have the counter inflammation pathway. You go back to zero and then you clearance and, and, and all of that. But at some point, there's a baseline inflammation that accumulates throughout your body, throughout the day, throughout the life. And, and, and the same thing with stress, this interaction between sympathetic and parasympathetic pathway. There's a resetting after a while because of this dysfunctional lives that we all uh, lead, some more than the others. So... What your book does is, when it comes to the stress component, actually, your stress component is not just stress component because you touch into inflammation, you touch into all of these other factors. It's being aware of this interplay of the yin and yang, you know, the two sides. We need, you know, sympathetic system and we need the parasympathetic system. But when it's there's an imbalance and that's a sustained imbalance, that's where chaos arises. When you have, you know, all the neuro uh, biochemical systems in the body, they're all in balance. When there's an imbalance over time, that's that's what happens. So becoming aware of your own imbalances that lead to that disproportionate sympathetic parasympathetic response or whether whether it's a nutrition where you see the imbalance of inflammation and clearance that's where we have to focus on you know we 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 create these esoteric language which a few people understand uh, you know and then majority of us don't which is okay just be present what does that mean how many times have we heard just be present it you know awareness and being focused so you can bring the frontal lobe into the conversation so that the frontal lobe can take the conversation over so that the emotional brain is not going out of control it's just about being awareness of the science and how to apply the science to life having said that that was a setup that was a volleyball spike to you (laughs) if you had to pick seven things that you could choose to reset your your emotional brain to its optimal state what would they i mean it doesn't have to be seven whatever i i read your book so i know there are seven and more but what would you pick so I think this is very important because the baseline state, what you just said is, is so important, is the baseline state, there are two ways really broadly to deal with stress. One is you want to be able to have ways to bring yourself back to baseline once you have become stressed. Okay, so that's one very important aspect. Now, in order to achieve that, you could have an extremely highly trained mind, but that takes a lot of work. Um, And not all of us uh, are there at this moment. Alternatively, well, it's not really an alternative, but another way of looking at it is to have a really excellent baseline. Because if you have a really excellent baseline of body state, it becomes much easier for you to return back to your original baseline after becoming um, very, very acutely stressed or intensely stressed or when you're stressed for a prolonged period of time. So you asked me what, what I 
would do for my baseline, for that baseline. So you're right. I spoke about seven main pathways, but unfortunately my, my book contains, as you know, quite a lot of tips. So I can just tell you certain things that I do. Um, So on a, on a day-to-day basis, I think that we know the basics, which you, you cover as well, which of course is extremely important for the brain, which is things like exercise and sleep. And I think that one of the, you know, one of the things that I've personally noticed when I've really looked into this is it's not just exercising and it's not just sleeping. It's how do you sleep? How well do you sleep? And how do you exercise? So for instance, from my personal point of view, I found that um, cutting out caffeine, for instance, I used to be a huge coffee lover. um, And I just wanted to play with what happens to me when I have no coffee which is a very cruel thing to do to yourself. But anyway. Oh, yes. I've, <laughs> um, I've experienced it. Yeah, yes. exactly. Um, and, and to be honest, for instance, there is no data that says that if you take coffee in someone who's a regular coffee drinker, you are causing them to become stressed. But there is some, perhaps not hugely valid data, but there is some kind of murky data on the fact that coffee prolongs the time it takes for your system, for for your stress response to completely recover. And prompted by this study, I thought, okay, what happens if I stop coffee? And for instance, when I've stopped drinking uh, coffee, my level of sleep is incredibly better. Um, And it will happen to different degrees to different people. But this is something that I find works for my baseline. So focusing on what makes my sleep better and also with exercise. So with exercise, another thing that I've talked about in my book, for instance, is I've talked about being in the state of flow of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's um, book, where he described a state where you're in, in the situation where you are in a state of effortless attention, but you're so absorbed in what you're doing, your emotional pathways, the emotional conversations, the, the annoying frustrations that constantly plague your mind are suddenly completely shut off. It happens to many people when they meditate. For me, it happens when I run. So what, one of the things that I do is one of the ways in which I try to switch off is to enter into this flow state. If I've had a stressful day or a stressful meeting or a stressful you know, episode, I try to fit in something that puts me into this flow state. And in my book, I also talk about something, um, I talk about sensory motor coupling. I talk about the Elvis effect, um, which is moving to music. Um, And and actually moving to music, this kind of predictive um, processing that, that the brain does where it anticipates a beat and it predicts that beat and coordinating yourself with that beat. All of those things have some beneficial effects. And I personally, again, this is my personal anecdote, I use that to get into a state of flow. So I essentially Mm -hmm. run to music. Um, And doing that detaches me and brings my baseline sympathetic drive lower. And when all these things, and, and also, you know, my day-to-day interactions, um, some other things that I've, I've, I've taken from the book are things like what you say as soon as there's a stressful um, experience, don't dwell, do something intense. And actually actively applying that makes a huge difference. If you have five episodes mm-hmm. during the day, which are two minutes of stress, and you ruminate on those for an hour, at the end of the day, you have five hours of stress. 
problem. Right. If you don't ruminate on them, you only have 10 minutes of stress and who can't cope with that? Right. So, mm-hmm. exactly. so that's another thing um, that I do. And I think that that's very helpful. So it's really not changing. So in my book, what I've tried to get across is that in order to improve your baseline, you don't have to go and go to a retreat and drop everything behind and meditate for hours. You can actually keep doing what you're doing, but you can just very slightly modify what you are doing. So you can improve your sleep by making some very small adjustments. You can improve your exercise by making small adjustments. You can improve the way you respond to stresses and recover afterwards by making these very small adjustments. Now, there's a very long list that I give in my book, admittedly, but they're all very small. They don't require drastic change in lifestyle. You can keep living the same job. So it's really trying to change the cues in your environment to change your perceived stress load. And at the same time, helping your body, kind of bringing your body and brain back from the frontier of inflammation or from the frontier of circadian rhythmic imbalances and doing things actively that kind of antagonize that aspect of stress. So that keeps you, as you say, perfectly balanced. That was just beautiful. That is beautiful. um, Again, uh, I think everybody should get your book. Uh, We are going to uh, uh, recommend it to everybody because I think at the center of any plan, life plan or health plan is stress management. Absolutely. And um, uh, we always we always say that um, stress uh, management, not just stress management, but health starts at home. It's it's the activities that you choose around you on a daily basis that either makes your brain or breaks your brain. And you, as you beautifully stated, um, we don't necessarily have to invest in something completely out of bounds by making sure that we address the small aspects of our lives, making small changes as we move forward. We can have an incredible, healthy mind and brain. And um, you couldn't have said it better. And we really appreciate it. So, Mithu, do you have any message or any um, statements that you want to uh, address and you want to say to our audience? Thank you. No, well, I just want to say that, you know, we always look at other people and how other people are doing. But sometimes, you know, every, stress is one of the very unique aspects actually all of medical illnesses are but stress seems to be even more so in today's time because it unifies us all it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what you think or what you do or how much how rich or how poor you are every single person is affected by stress and it has no barriers. And so appreciating that and reducing our stress levels can make ourselves better, can make our worlds around us better. And hence it can improve relationships. It can improve how happy you feel with the world and improve the decisions you make on the basis of that. And I honestly think that it really is a trailer to the movies, to the horror movies that may or may not be coming in the future. So if you make your trailer of a beautiful movie instead of a horror movie, then you're much more likely to have a beautiful movie for the rest of your life. We love it. Here's to a beautiful trailer for our movies. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 